Good morning. I already can tell this is the amen. Is this the amen section over here? I like that. Ah, amen. And the older and wiser I get, I think that too. So, well, it's good to be with you guys. Um, my name is Ken Tombley, and uh, for the last 10 years, I have been working in the mental health profession. I'm the clinical director of a treatment center that does inpatient and outpatient care. I also sit on some committees for the state of Missouri that look at social services and um, uh, ways to address some of the issues that our communities are facing in our state. Uh, I do some adjunct professor teaching at Missouri State University and Southwest Baptist University and occasionally at Midwestern Seminary. And so I get an opportunity to sit along uh, a lot of people that are in kind of the mainstream culture. I get an opportunity to sit along those that are progressive in their thoughts and um, not believers necessarily, and they're talking about how they see life moving forward and what they think is good and what they think is bad. I also have had opportunities to sit with students uh, and hear some of their thoughts and some of their reflections. And every year I teach a class on relationships, and I update statistics. Um, if you're in the social services, you like love data. And... Um, and I'm trying to share the statistics. The statistics when it comes to relationships are very saddening, by the way. I'm going to share some of those with you a little, uh, a little bit later, but I'm going to try to do it in a positive direction. But when it comes to relationships, we see that uh, well over 75% of people are cohabitating before they get married. Um, divorce rates are up. You already know that. Um, and one of the things that is interesting is we all know the statistic about 50% of divorces of, of, relation, of marriages in a divorce, but there's a far higher number of relationships that break up that cohabitate. And we're just now beginning to chart that. We are charting over the last 10 years more accurately and with greater resilience some of the other family structures that we see as dominant family structures. We just didn't count that stuff before. We count it now. And what we're seeing is kind of chilling, actually, um, that things are, are, are very different based on the kind of family unit that is organized and structured. Now, that, that difference is often overshadowed by the progression that, that many people think is happening. And so I sit at the table, and here's what I hear. You know, we've changed marriage, and um, we, we started in the 60, I think 1967, with no-fault divorce, and it kind of freed up people that were in unhappy marriages. It was a specifically... Um, a movement driven by women, actually, uh, because women were being kind of oppressed and exploited, and they were stuck in these marriages, and no-fault divorce kind of freed that up. It was easier for them to get out. It also began to remove what they wanted, the stigma of criminality that was associated, because before no-fault divorce, you had to go before the judge. You had to say, look, here's the law that was broken, and convince the judge that you needed to, to be able to be um, divorced, and the judge had the authority to do that. And under that, there was a lot of underhanded stuff, and there was a lot of exploitation that took place. And, and so that that was considered like a victory that um, we've kind of got that kind of oppression away. The stigma of divorce, we, uh, they've worked hard to try to remove the stigma of divorce so that people didn't kind of uh, walk shamelessly around after they were divorced. More recently, we see the movements of marriage equality by allowing the LGBT community begin to be married and be part of the, the, the marriage movement. Uh, there's another big movement. You're going to start hearing a lot about this, about um, 
child marriages. They're going to be they're working now hard to move against child marriages. There's all these things that that they're touting in the midst of the data saying, look, we're making progress. Marriage is better. We finally have the state out of marriage. The state is out of the marriage business, and it's just back to whatever people want to do. Polymory and several other um, types of polygamous or multiple kind of relationship marriage family units are emerging, and they're touting how, how advanced that is, too. To. And I sat in the state at a committee meeting for uh, the Coalition of Behavioral Health, and they were talking about these advances, and I, I said, what if we're wrong? What if these aren't advances? And I got, obviously, some strange looks because I'm the old white man in the group. And uh, I said, what if we're not, what if we aren't uh, moving backwards? What if we're removing marriage? We're pushing marriage out rather than bringing it in. Rather than elevating it and kind of releasing it and, and making it better, we're actually making it worse, and that is having an impact on our society. So I want to talk to you about that. So today I want to talk to you about marriage being about more than just you. For the last 30 years, the emphasis in marriage education, marriage enrichment, and marriage teaching and preaching, especially in the Christian church, has been focused on enriching your personal experience of marriage. It's all been about gaining more intimacy. It's all been about being more emotionally connected so you have better emotions. It's been about equality of 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 value and how that works out. So there's been a lot out there, and all those things are good. Those are important things, but I want to set those aside because there's so much about that. I want to talk to you about how marriage may actually not just be for your personal enrichment and satisfaction, but what if it's actually for the state of the community that you live in? What if it really is that kind of impact, that kind of impacting on how we live and, and what we do? So I've been married for 34 years, and that doesn't give me authority to speak to you. What gives me, I think, authority to speak to you about marriage is kind of what I've gone through in marriage, you know, and where, where it stands. My marriage has had to endure. Uh, Kathy and I have been married uh, 34 years. We raised nine kids. Um, they're all out of the house now. Emptiness is fantastic. I don't know why they were saying it was bad. I'm like, this is beautiful. And um, they're, they're healthy, they're following the Lord, uh, they've they got jobs, I'm, I'm happy about all that, good stuff. And, um, but our marriage has not always been smooth and easy. I'm not up here saying, look, I did it right, follow me. But what is marks my marriage is we had an 11-year-old son that came down with, with um, type 1 diabetes, and we, we struggled through that and all that that brought in. We buried a 24-year-old son for cancer. Um, uh, we had made incredibly foolish financial decisions and had the, the pressure of the weight of debt that we had to work ourselves through. Um, I will just tell you, for me, a double-mindedness in my own mind that I had to, had to resolve. And, and those are just the things I'm not embarrassed to say. All right, there's many others. And I'm not telling any Kathy stuff because I'm not allowed to. So we've borne kind of the, if I could borrow the term labor pains, the labor pains of marriage. And just like when you're in labor and it's terrible. I mean, if it was up to men to have babies, I don't know that we would. 
I remember watching Kathy have those babies every time, and I'm like, this is bad. And, and it would be intense, and then that baby would come, and we would be all wrapped up in just the glory of that new child and the, the, the mystery and the magic of that, and it's just phenomenal. And we would, within days, the intensity of labor would fade from our mind because it's swallowed up in the victory of that baby. Marriage is like that. The labor pains of marriage does the same thing. As you get to the victory, as you get to the reward after the work, it begins to swallow up. So no matter what the labor pains were in our marriage, where we are now is just beautiful. I mean, I love my wife more now than I did when we got married. I enjoy her more. I feel more comfortable with her. I disagree with her more. She disagrees more with me. And we don't get upset about that. Whereas before, we felt like we had to always agree or the world just was not right. But that's not the case. There's, there's something sweet. When I grab her hand and we walk down the dirt road in front of our farm and we talk about the kids and we look at our farm and, and, and what she's doing in the classroom and, and she teaches second grade and I'm talking about what's going on in my world and it, it, there's something that just says this is right. This is good. It's such a, a joyful thing a shared sense of meaning. And I'm going to talk about that later on this afternoon. That kind of just, this reverberates. It just gets louder and louder and better and better. And all the labor pains of our, of our marriage and the labor pains that are yet to come, they're going to pale in comparison to the victories. And as we labor in that, it affects our children. It affects our coworkers. It affects my neighborhood, if you can say I have a neighborhood, like the three people that live on my dirt road. But it does affect them. It affects the community I live in. It affects the employees that work for me. It affects the services that I deliver in the mental health community. It affects the church that we worship in and serve in. It affects everything. Because marriage isn't just about us and our personal fulfillment. It's about the community that we live in. The world right now is struggling with where does marriage fit in. They don't know. It saddens me to hear students say, you know, I don't know that I ever want to get married. But they do. Or they'll say this. My grandparents, one girl told me, my grandparents have been married 70 years and they've hated each other for 50 years. Why would I ever want to get married? See, that grandparent's marriage is affecting that grandchild. She's making decisions about her life based on what she saw in someone else's marriage. That's how that works. It's subtle. It's not as obvious, but it's very, very real. My wife um, will come home sometimes extremely frustrated because so many of her students come from split families. And it impacts her classroom. First of all, it frustrates her because she has to send home separate pieces of paper to two different parents because they, don't, they won't communicate with one another. It changes how she teaches and how she spends her time. My grandson sits in a classroom where he's one of, one of four in a classroom of 20 that come from an intact married family. And continually... All those other kids and the chaos in which they're manifesting rob my grandson of education, time, and attention. Do you see what I'm saying? 
Other people's marriages affect the world they live in, the community they live in. You know, I watch people in, that I treat that are in the treatment realm or that we're working with in, in social services, and you see marriages fall apart, and suddenly where there was one household that was stable, there's two households that are, neither one of them were stable, and where are most of them, how are they surviving? They're both on social welfare programs, because it's the only way they're going to survive. Who pays for that? We do. So when other people's marriages fall apart, it affects us all. The state of our health as a, as a people and as a community, as a, as, a, as a society, is impacted by how we approach and what we do with marriage. Let me tell you a little bit about the history of marriage. You know, the early church did not really care much about marriage because they thought Jesus was coming back. So Paul said, don't marry, stay single and serve the poor, preach the gospel. That makes sense, doesn't it? You know, he says, only marry if you burn. Other than that, let's get to the, the work of the kingdom. Well, Jesus tarried longer, I think, than Paul originally thought was going to happen. Um, and I'm frustrated with that, by the way. I want Jesus to come back. And, um, but nonetheless, uh, marriage began to, to conti- continue as Jesus tarried in his return in his own wisdom. And the... The, the institution of marriage kept happening, but the church was not the authorizers of marriage. In fact, it wasn't until Lord Hardwick's Marriage Act of 1753 that we actually, the, state, the church actually authorized marriage. Prior to that, it was a civic expression. It was something that was done in the community, and it was done sometimes with civic governments, and sometimes it was just done by your pledge. So the early church didn't have a lot to do with marriage. It really wasn't until the 5th century, the Council of Florence, that marriage was added as a sacrament, meaning it was a way in which that you encountered the grace of God. You encountered God in marriage. I think that that's a fair game to say. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. That the union of Christ and his church stirs up the image of God in us when we're married, and I'm going to get to that later. But they recognized it. They still weren't authorizing marriages. They were just blessing marriages. The church in, in the Dark Ages or Middle Ages really got involved primarily in marriage because they had to navigate conflict because civil structures had kind of decayed in the Western culture. So there wasn't a lot of good government. And so the, the institution that remained was the church. So conflict was going to the church. So the marriage got sucked into Uh, The church got sucked into managing marriages basically because of of conflict in marriages. And so all a thousand years later at the Council of Trent in 1547, marriage is actually written into the canon law. So there's actually laws now at that council that are formalized that this is how we're going to deal with marriage. But they still were just blessing unions. It wasn't really until in the Church of England that the church that marriage had to be performed by a priest and that had to be authorized by the church. You know, so, so my son had this big argument because he was so excited that I think it's the state of Alabama only is doing civil unions in the churches, that marriage is for the church. It all belongs to the church. And I'm like, no, it doesn't. Marriage belongs to the, the civil The state has a vested interest in the nature of church, of marriages. 
and we argue back and forth because that's what we like to do. And um, he's kind of happy that it's been pulled out of civic attention. So generally, where did marriage, how was marriage managed? Well, generally it was marriage first and foremost by families. Fathers would get together and they would go and meet another father and there would be an agreement that would be made that this marriage was good. Then there would be a pledge. And that pledge it was just a spoken word. It always was spoken in public, so there always was witnesses. And just your spoken word bounds you together, both civically and spiritually. The church then would come in and bless that pledge, not authorize it, but bless it, and say, amen, hallelujah to that. They would acknowledge the pledge that was made between two people. The power of marriage is in the pledging of one another, that covenant relationship. And your pastors talked about that the last couple of weeks. In fact, as I was getting ready to, to be here, I would, I've been listening to the sermon, so this has been fun, lots and lots of fun. God is... God is not surprised that sex is good. I'll never forget that one. Okay. So the church blesses it. But marriage is always a civil expression. It's a civil expression of how we're going to manage property, how we're going to manage um, children, how we're going to manage education, how we're going to manage health. It's the foundation. It's the core structure. In fact, even outside of Christianity, the marriage unit becomes the core structure of every other institution in an organized or civil society. It's the family. Therefore, the state does have, I believe, a vested interest in how well marriages are going. From a Christian perspective, it is even more so important. Even more so because marriage is a spiritual experience, and that doesn't mean the wedding. That's just the beginning of the spiritual experience. It's a spiritual experience that echoes into our our community. It's the way that we are light into a darkness. The prophet Malachi understood this. Malachi is the last book of the Bible. It's the last prophet that spoke. And Malachi, um, unfortunately, the people of Israel did not listen to Malachi because then the prophetic voice of God went silent. And if you ever want to be in a sad place, you want to be in a place that's devoid of the voice of the God or, or the movement of his Holy Spirit. That's a scary place to be. And for 400 years, that's what happened. God was silent and because they did not heed the words of Malachi. But I want to look at Malachi for a moment, okay? Now, here's a picture of uh, Malachi from the, the uh, classical early church. This is a big classical. See, he has a stick, so he's a prophet. And he's old, and uh, so he must be wise. And he holds his hands in the prophetic way, you know. But I have a cooler version of, of Malachi, I think. There we go. That's a cooler version of Malachi. Uh, he's got some dreads on going there. So, but Malachi comes in. We don't know much about Malachi, who he was and who he was related to. But he has an oracle. An oracle is almost like a dramatic reading. Okay? And as he proclaims the word of God to the Israelites, he speaks on behalf of God, then there's an answer, and then there's a judgment, and then there's a redemption. He speaks, there's an answer, a judgment, and a redemption. This kind of echoes over and over again. So if you like a little bit of sarcasm, um, this is, you'll love this book. Okay, those of you that think sarcasm is a gift, a spiritual gift, uh, then you'll like it. Because God kind of gets a little snarky. 
He says at one point, he says in this dialogue that, he, that is being presented, he's, he's complaining about the priestly class first. The priests were, they weren't taking seriously the offerings that they were offering. And so he says, you know what I'm going to do? You bring me these, these broken down, diseased animals, the, the, the culling of the crop, and you offer them on as your festival sacrifices. Well, I'm going to take the dung. This is what God says. I'm going to take the dung from those offerings and smear it on your face. God means business when he gets out that, doesn't he? God was not happy. He's not happy with, with the priest and how the priests were allowing these kinds of worship, this kind of sacrifice to happen. So Malachi challenges the, the priest and then he challenges the people about what's going on in the state. Let, let me tell you, let's look at what was going on. So they, the, the Jews had gotten out of, gotten back from captivity. The temple had been rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem were back up, but it just didn't look very good. I mean, it was not impressive, but it's hard to beat Solomon's temple. Okay, you're, you're probably not going to beat that. It was unimpressive. And that unimpressiveness had, had kind of worked its way into the whole people, and they just felt like, all right, we're, we're Jewish. We're Jews, but there's nothing fantastic about that. There's nothing compelling about that. There's nothing gripping about that. It is who we are. It's our heritage. But for the most part, we're relatively forgotten. They felt relatively forgotten, and a contempt had kind of stirred up in their heart regarding regarding God. They were still doing the sacrifices and they were still holding on to their culture, but there was no kind of fire, there was no kind of zeal, there was no kind of passion in what they were doing. So much so that they couldn't even see where they were kind of getting sloppy. They were unaware of their sloppiness. You know, we'll take the worst of the crop up there. It doesn't really matter. God doesn't really care for us. They thought God was not trustworthy, basically. And so they were going through the motions, but... They had no real sense uh, of connection with what was happening. And they were in what Malachi is going to call treacherous waters. He's going to challenge them. So let's look at that. Malachi chapter 2. Starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Right off the bat, he calls us to, he calls the, the Hebrews to their heritage. Who are you? Where did you come from? Remember what God has done. Yes, it's been a generation since you've seen something phenomenal happen, a miracle. Yes, what's your, your place of worship isn't as fancy as it was. You're not renowned among all the nations right now. In fact, they kind of look at you in a degrading fashion. But don't, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget that one God created you. So he's calling them to, to design, I'll say. He calls them to the, where they found their source, just like you and I. We were all created by one God. But he calls them, not only that, but he calls them to their, their place in the nations. Now, they couldn't see it because they were, they were obscured by the Persians and other, by the Egyptians even at this time and what was going on over there. They were obscured by that. But he says, you've been called to something important. What were the Jews called for? 
God didn't like the Jews better than he liked some other nations, than the Persians. He called the Jews, and they became a chosen people because they were chosen by task, not chosen because of their value. Their task was to live out as a nation, live out their life as a witness, as a revelation of who the one true living God was. Their history was a telling. In fact, the Old Testament is the recording of their history. And we look at it with great respect, don't we? God showed us who he was through the nation of Israel. So how as they lived their life, that was their calling. They were to do that. When you accepted Jesus and said, I want to follow you, Jesus, you were grafted into that same group of people. That's who you are as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, a grafted in people that are special because your, your life is going to bear the truth of God to, a na- to many, many nations. Many, many nations. So he calls them back to that and said, remember where you are. What are you called to? And then he asks the question, why do you deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. He's setting them up. To deal treacherously, what does that mean? That means that there was a a sense of deceit or mistrust. But more than that, this word conveys the idea that the the treachery is hidden. It's unknown. So that treachery might be hidden to the person receiving it, and it may even be hidden to the person that's committing it. We talk about being on a treacherous ground, meaning we don't know if the ground's going to shake or move. All right? People talk about this, uh, there's a phrase, and, and I tried to find the movie, but I can't find it, about snow as they're going across this, um, the mountain in the snow and how it's treacherous because they don't know at any time if the snow's going to fall. There's this sense when there's a treachery going on, there's a hiddenness. I want to say to you today that there's a treachery going on about marriage that we are, we are blinding ourselves to. So God asks the question, the question, why do you deal treacherously with one another? By profaning the covenant of the fathers. Well, what is this covenant? He goes on, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the Lord's holy, these say sacrifices, no, institution which he loves. He has married the daughters of a foreign god. He didn't point to the sacrificial system. He didn't point to the temple. What did he point to? He pointed to marriage. What is this great covenant, this great important thing that they were supposed to do, that they were treacherously violating, that there was an abomination? It's the way that they were dealing with their marriages. Instead of marrying Jews, many of the men were going out, and they were marrying women of pagan gods. They were chasing after that, an impulse. She looks good. She looks fine. I'm going there. They were defining themselves and chased by those impulses and marrying these women of pagan gods. Not only were they doing that, the passage goes on, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And in this, the second thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. So they're having really good emotional worship. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. 
Yet you say, for what reason? Like, why, why don't you take what we offer you, God? And he says, because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth. Here you go. With whom you have dealt treacherously. Here's the second treachery. The first one was that they were going off and they were just marrying the daughters of pagan gods. Second of all is they were divorcing their Jewish wives to do this. They were leaving behind their Jewish wives. And he says, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You're breaking covenant. And because they were breaking covenant or coveting with a pagan, it was impacting worship. It was impacting worship. It was impacting the community. It was shifting the very mission of the people, the very purpose. It was going to the very foundations of what was happening and and disrupting it. But did he not make them one? Verse 16, having a remnant of the Spirit? What does that mean? When they pledged, God did something miraculous. Okay? There's something that happened. There's a a movie clip that I was going to show because it shows a good love conversation between a couple. And uh, as I was looking at it, I opted not to, but they said something in there that isn't fully true but is partially true. The woman says to this, this woman and man are arguing about whether or not they want it to marry in the future. And they're like, I don't think so. I want to be independent. I want to have all these goals of personal fulfillment. And then they finally start getting honest with one another. And he says, you know, I think that I dream sometimes, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but I dream sometimes about being a husband and being a father. But I think that's going to disrupt all the things that I'm supposed to do. And she says, I have that same thing. I want to be this independent woman, but what I long for, and not ever be subservient to a man, but what I long to more than anything else is to kind of cling to a man and they start having this discussion and they're they're searching and she says you know what i've come to believe that it's not god in me or god in you that's the part i disagree with but she says i think god is in the middle between whatever happens between a man and woman when they commit their lives together that god is right there in the middle that i think is biblical There's a remnant. There's an element of the spirit that is present in the union so that you can be the witnesses to the world around you. I'll come back to that. So therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one in a garment with violence. So he is not subtle about his position. Says the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. This is the passage that Jesus quotes, recorded in Matthew, where it says God hates divorce. Why does he hate divorce? He hates divorce because it fractures the covenant. It fractures The union, it destabilizes not just the individuals, but it destabilizes the whole community. The witness is missing. We sang the song, Show Me Your Glory. What is that? 
the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is the manifested presence of the Lord. That's what you were after, right? Come, show me the glory. I want you to show up. In the Old Testament, it would show up sometimes like a cloud. I wish the clouds would come back, honestly. More people would pay attention if we started having cloud-filled churches. They would start saying, I've got to go see that cloud. But the, the manifested glory, the move of the Spirit that happens, show me your glory. We are that slipping away. Someone asked me the other day about whether or not I wanted to go back into the pastorate, and, and I found myself saying and shocking myself, why would I want to lead an institution that's dying? Isn't that scary? You know, I'm like, I wanted to slap myself right there. And I'm just like, Lord, do I need to repent? Where's the lightning? What's going on? Why did I think that? It's because when I look around, I see the American church in decline, and I'm not going to fool myself or lie to myself and say that it's not. I'm teaching in a Sunday school class, and I was talking about the bridal paradigm and about Jesus returning. And one day when he returns, he's going to come in a cloud, and everyone's going to see him. And that cloud, and I believe, is going to kind of go across the nation. It's not going to be because you have the Internet. It's going to be because he's going to take his time to go around and show himself as a big, huge cloud. And maybe he'll capture us up, and that'll be the rapture, but that's another series. Anyway, it's going around, and he captures us up. And I said to everybody in the Sunday school class, I think that's going to happen, um, It's going to start in Asia because they pray more than we do. And they do. They seek the face of God with an an intentionality that American churches have lost. Okay? They don't know how to do it. You know, they pray for three hours, and if we can get past three minutes, we go, all right, let's move on to something serious. We just don't know. And I don't say that to be disparaging to you. That's just a reality. That was a reality in my own life. Okay? I knew prayer was important, but I didn't really enjoy it. It took me a long time to enjoy it. I was reading the the book by Richard Foster on prayer, and he talks about one of the spiritual disciplines that the Desert Fathers had was the, the, the prayer of tears. Anybody ever hear that, prayer of tears? It's great. This is fantastic. I love Richard Foster's stuff. Anyway, I was like the prayer of tears. Now I've been emotional. I'm not. It's not hard for me to get emotional. So don't. But I'm usually emotional when there's like really emotional music around. And um, I was like, what? What is the prayer of tears? And I spent like three months asking the Lord to show me the prayer of tears. I wanted to be able to begin to weep just because I touched and felt the glory of the Lord. I just wanted to cry. I wanted to be so moved by God himself that I could sit on a rock and just suddenly weep because God's so beautiful. It took me three months of pursuit to do that. You know, it was a breakthrough for me that I could, that I could set aside all the things that had gotten in the way so that I could see God that way. That's what God wants to manifest in our lives and he wants to manifest it in our marriages, and it echoes into our communities. Marriage affects who we really are. It affects the world around us. So I told you that I was um, in the social services, and we love statistics. So let me give you a few, okay? I'm going to start off and say that marriage affects, I'm going to say this just in two sentences, sexuality. If you can't see that we are in a sexually chaotic culture, then 
then you, you haven't opened your eyes yet. I'm going to just go, I'll leave that one. But I want you to listen to some of the statistics, statistics that come out as we begin to take, take record of what's happening and how marriage changes relationships, institutions, and conditions of a society as whole. First of all, marriage strengthens extended families and creates support, exchange support. So married people are more likely to give and receive support from their parents, so they're taking care of their parents later in age. And if, if, if kids take care of their parents, who doesn't have to take care of their parents? The state. All right? And uh, kids are more likely to receive help from their parents when they come from a married family unit. Adults who grew up in a biological, with biological parents in a married family unit have higher levels of marital happiness. Right? Young adults raised in happily married families are more religious than young adults raised in other family structures or family units. A greater proportion of children from intact married families earn more A's in school. And children in intact married families have the highest combined English and math grade point averages. Children from intact married families have the highest high school graduation rate and are more likely to go on to additional education. Moreover, children of married parents are more engaged in school than children of other family structures. Adolescents from intact married families are less frequently suspended, less frequently expelled, less delinquent, and uh, less frequently experience school problems than children of any other family structure. Marriage is, is good for education. In the marketplace, the government survey data overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly documents that married parent households work, earn, save, and have significantly higher rates than other family structures or households. They also pay their taxes. And when taxes are paid, infrastructure gets done, programs and services, we're better off. Married men are more likely to work than cohabitating men. Married fathers work more hours than cohabitating fathers. Children living with two biological cohabitating parents, this is freaky, this one always freaks me out, if the, even if the parents are biological, they just cohabitate versus biological parents that marry Children that grow up in cohabitating biological homes are 263% more likely to experience poverty than children growing up in married homes. Okay? Married step-parents even have better economic outcomes than those that are cohabitating. Married men earn more money than single men. Men's productivity increases by 26% as a result of marrying. Consequently, married families have larger incomes. Intact married families have the largest annual income of all family structures that have children in them. Married couples save more money than unmarried couples. Married households have longer average or greater average net worth at retirement. Young married couples tend to have goals for retirement. Cohabitating and single couples, single people and cohabitating couples do not. It's amazing. It's better for our economy. Crime. Married men are less likely to commit crimes. Intact families are associated with an increase of compliance and safety. So non-intact or non-married families have a higher rate of violence in them. 
Adolescents living in married, intact families steal less frequency, frequently than adolescents they don't. They commit less violent crimes than adolescents coming from non-married families. Marriage is associated with lower rates of domestic violence and abuse in comparison to cohabitation. Cohabitating women are 8.9 times more likely to be murdered by their partner than married women. Am I I making a good case to not cohabitate? All right. Pregnant and married women are less physically abused than unmarried and single women. Teenagers from divorced families are more verbally aggressive and violent toward their romantic partners. It all echoes. Abuse increases when marriage decreases. Mental health. Married people experience less depression rate and less anxiety rates. Those who are married report less depression than cohabitating couples. Adolescents with married partners are less likely to be depressed than people in step families or single families. Married people have less suicide than unmarried or cohabitating people. Married people are much more likely to report being happier than cohabitators are. Adolescents from intact married families are less likely to use cocaine than divorced families. Married Teenagers from intact families are less likely to begin smoking than those in married families. Married people go to the hospital less, they get released sooner, and they move from the hospital to nursing homes less often. Marriage affects every area of life. You were designed to be married and to do just that. Affect every area of your life. Why? Because when you got married, out of, out of man came woman. You come back together. And then in your oneness, you do what? You have children. You bear the image of God. Your children look like you. You echo the holiness. And one of, in fact, procreation is one of the most divine things you'll ever do. The most like God you'll ever be. When you marry... You invite the manifested presence of God into not just your home, but into your whole community. Especially as a Christian. Now, you know you cannot trust today's government to take care of your marriages, right? Are you, you're aware of that. There was a day. You cannot do that anymore. The, the government is not going to be able to, to deal with marriage. You're going to have to do it in your own community. You're going to have to be known as a different kind of people that approach marriage differently than, than those that are not followers of Jesus. And that's okay. It's all right. You can do that. So you come in and you put marriage back in the center and you get your marriages right and you watch your churches change. You watch your schools being enhanced. You watch the economics change slowly but surely. You bear the witness. The image of God is stirred up and made known as you walk through your marriage, good and bad, difficult and easy. It's a powerful thing that you do. So what is it that I want you that you can do? What can we do to start this trend to say, wait, marriage isn't just about my personal enrichment. It's about my whole community, about my whole faith. It's one of the most spiritual things I do as a witness to the world. Here's the first thing you do, is you need to start having more parties. Okay? You need to celebrate more because you celebrate what's important. And don't have a little Baptist wedding. 
it's time to shake it off. And you need to have like a wedding that's, that's worshipful, a ceremony. And then you need to go to about a three-hour reception. And you need to dance and sing and celebrate and just have a great time. You need to do all that. Make it a priority. It's time for us to say, I still do. I still commit to marriage. I'm going to make it important that your church is doing that by having a marriage weekend. Making it a priority in how you begin to to deal with it. How you stand alongside people. Making provision. Training. Because you don't automatically know how to get mar- be married, do you? What happens when you're going through the labor pains? Do we know how to stand by them? Or are we too busy, you know, too busy with other things saying, I don't know what to do about that. Some of you, and I don't, it's none of you actually, okay, because I don't really know any of you that much. But some people out there, we'll talk about those people, even in the church, you give really bad advice. Men get together and like, yeah, I couldn't live with your wife either. <laughs> don't, don't do that. I know you want to be encouraging somehow. All right? But men, stand alongside your friends, other men, and don't let that kind of talk be dominant. Say, no, I know it's rough. I know this is hard for you, but it's important. You can do this. You can listen, but don't encourage the negative. Women, You've got the same. I'm not even going to talk about it. You know. You know. You do it too. We give bad advice. We don't make it a priority. We say, yeah, don't let her take her mo- your money. Don't let him oppress you. We, 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 give all, we raise all kinds of other priorities over marriage. It is worth it. There's a study called the A study, Adverse Childhood Effects. All right, 12, I think it's 12 things, that if you have three or more, you're more likely to have Med- chronic medical conditions all the way into your 50s and 60s. You're going to have all kind of, uh, you're at risk for all kinds of mental health issues. You just have three of these 12. Do you know what one of those is? A divorced or separated family. I, I remember being as a teenager, and I remember hearing you know, on the talk radio or wherever I was listening, who knows? I mean, oh, the kids are resilient, the kids are not a- enough of a reason. For you to get married or to stay married. That's a lie. They are enough of a reason for you to get your act together and figure out how to, how to bear the image of God in your marriage. They are worth it. They're worth every bit of it, every penny, every effort that you do. Make it a priority to do that. The third thing is pray. It's time for prayer to find its place back into the American church. Now, I'm not talking about the Wednesday night prayer meeting when you you list all the ailments, every organ that is failing, okay? All right? Not that I did not appreciate when we were going through physical issues with our children, people praying for their help. I appreciated that. But I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm talking about times when you can sit before the Lord. Do you guys know about the Moravians? Do you know the Moravians had the glory of the Lord come down? And they started having a prayer meeting continuously. And you know how long it lasted? 100 years of continuous prayer. These group of people organized. Their children organized. Their children's children organized. That's three generations to make that happen. 
And out of that came some of the great spiritual awakenings, came the great missionary movements that went across. It's, it's amazing. Prayer. We have to get back to praying. We need to be able to get before the Lord and, and, and plead and beg and not worry about that. that. Let, let, God, let God hear you beg. God, change it. Because when you pray, the power will come. When you get before the Lord, the power will come, and that's what you need to sustain your marriage. I talked about it yesterday. I'll talk about it again this afternoon. The changes that you make aren't just what you do together. It's what you do with yourself. Whether you think you're the victim in in the marriage or the more right one in in your marriage conflict, the truth is what you're doing, your state of mind, your heart is a roadblock to recovery, and you need to deal with God. Your partner is not going to make you feel better. Your partner is not going to motivate you. Your partner is not going to change your heart, but God will in a surprising moment. You need to be able to get back to prayer, pleading with the Lord, and, and, and asking for his power to show up. We just need your power, God. We need your power to do that. Let's stand together and do that right now. Father, we ask for your glory to come. We, we stand with promises. We remember your promises. And God, we confess that sometimes we, we have contempt in our heart and we feel like you just don't really care that much. We don't understand why you tarry. We don't understand why things happen and why there's suffering. We don't understand. But, God, we want to put all that misunderstanding or lack of understanding aside and say we do know that you are the one true living God. We do know, Jesus, that you were born of a virgin. We do know that you came and redeemed us. We do know that you are Messiah. We do know that there is power in your name. We do know that your blood set us free. We do know that you are right, true, and holy. And we do know you're coming again no matter how long that takes. You are coming again. We do know a day is coming when you're going to set feet on Mount Zion and you're going to rule with, a, with justice and you will rightly be known as the king of the universe to all the peoples. We know this. And so we call upon it right now, God, and ask that we would just have faith and trust in that. We could drop our doubt. We could drop our double-mindedness for a moment and we could plead out, to you that you would shift marriages in our community, that our churches would change their perspective. They would love God greatly. Come, come Holy Spirit, touch us, stir us, knock down our defenses, melt our hearts so that we would be one with the wives of our youth. 